Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL on this fine Friday morning. And with me, my two scholars and gentlemen, uh, Mike Jeremia, our warrior in the courtroom, and Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And I'm Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And we're bringing you a new series called The Decent Dozen. Yet as we looked at the Dirty Dozen, that is the worst Supreme Court cases, and we're now looking at, well, good cases. Not perfect cases, but good cases that we, we have called The Decent Dozen. And this morning, it's an interesting case really regarding the issue of what are the limits on when they want to investigate you if they can they break into your house and just start rifling through your goods or is there some limitation you know like well, the fourth amendment some limitation on the powers uh, the police powers of the government and uh, this is the case in 1961 map v ohio phil why don't you bring us your thoughts on map v ohio before considering this case as a part of the decent dozen, it will be helpful to reflect on the Bill of Rights and its relationship to the basic Constitution. Remember that the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791, three years after the Constitution was ratified. The Federalist Essays had been written and published by 1788, and the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists was in the rearview mirror when the Bill of Rights had been ratified. It had been a period of intense discussion about the Constitution, which had been formed by the states. We should assume that the people involved in framing the Bill of Rights knew exactly what they wished to communicate and had little need for more than two centuries of judicial opinions to get it right. Now look closely at the First and Second Amendment language. This is what the First Amendment says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Whereas this is what the Second Amendment says. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The First and Second Amendments are directed to two different entities, the First Amendment to Congress and the Second Amendment to the people. Now let's quickly scan the Third to Eighth Amendments. Third Amendment. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. The target is an owner of a house, a member of the people. The Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures and so forth. The Fifth Amendment, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime and so forth. The Sixth Amendment, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right of a speedy and public trial. The accused is a part of the people. Seventh Amendment. In suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined 
in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. The implied target here is persons or the people. The Eighth Amendment. Excessive bail shall not be required or excessive fines imposed or cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Again, the target is the accused as a part of the people. Let's summarize the first eight amendments to the Constitution, viewing the Bill of Rights as protection of the people from potential or uh, uh, the potential of tyrannical government. The First Amendment stands out as an exception in that it precludes a uh, it uh, precludes a specific branch of government, Congress, from exercising tyrannical powers. The second through eighth amendments are specific protections of persons, or more abstractly, the people. Now let's consider the final two amendments of the Bill of Rights. The ninth says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. This is a general principle of the relationships of people's rights and government's powers. What this means for the First Amendment is that in denying Congress the power to create laws infringing religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition, the First Amendment did not empower the states to infringe those rights. What was the source of these rights? The natural law mentioned by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Let's complete the amendments in the Bill of Rights with the Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Again, like the Ninth Amendment, this amendment is a general principle of the relationships of people's rights and government's powers. Is the Tenth Amendment redundant with the Ninth or complementary? It is essentially complementary because without it, there is no recognition that the people first delegated some of their powers to their state governments. It was the state governments that formed the federal government. Where have we seen this structure previously? Granting powers and then restricting them. In the basic constitutions, Article 1, Section 8 to 10. Section 8 grants power limited enumerated powers. Section 9 identifies restrictions of Congress's powers. And Section 10 describes restriction, restrictions of states' powers. Why is this background important? We need to look into the background of MAP versus Ohio first, and then consider the Supreme Court's opinion before answering that question. Wikipedia described the case background. Dolly, Dolly Mapp was a young woman involved in the illegal gambling operations of mobster and racketeer Shondor Burns, who dominated organized crime in Cleveland, Ohio in the 1940s and 50s. On May 23, 1957, Cleveland police received an anonymous tip that a man named Virgil Ogletree might be found at Mapp's house, along with illegal betting slips and equipment employed in a numbers game set up by Mapp's boyfriend. Ogletree was involved in the Cleveland illegal betting world, centered on the city's short Vincent. He was wanted for questioning in the bombing of rival gambling racketeer 
and future boxing promoter Don King's home three days earlier. Three policemen went to Mapp's home and asked for permission to enter, but Mapp, after consulting her lawyer by telephone, refused to admit them without a search warrant. Two officers left and one remained watching the house from across the street. Three hours later, more police officers arrived and knocked on the door. When Mapp did not answer, they forced the door open. Mapp asked to see their search warrant and was shown a piece of paper which she snatched away from an officer, putting it inside her dress. The officers struggled with Mapp and recovered the piece of paper, which was not seen by her or her lawyers again and was not introduced as evidence in any of the ensuing court proceedings. As the search of Mapp's second floor, two-bedroom apartment began, police handcuffed her for being belligerent. The police searched the house thoroughly and discovered Ogletree, who was subsequently cleared on the bombing charge, hiding in the apartment of the downstairs tenant. In a search of Mapp's apartment and in a footlocker in the basement of the house, the police found bedding slips. They also found a pistol and several pornographic books and pictures, which Mapp said a previous tenant had left behind. The police arrested Mapp and charged her with a misdemeanor count of possessing numbers game par paraphernalia, but she was acquitted. Several months later, after Mapp refused to testify against Burns and his associates at their trial for the attempted shakedown of King, she was prosecuted for possession of the pornographic books. Mapp was found guilty at trial of knowingly having had in her possession and under her control certain lewd and lascivious books, pictures, and photographs in violation of 2905.34 of Ohio's Revised Code and sentenced to one to seven years in prison. Mapp was convicted even though prosecutors were unable to produce a valid search warrant. She appealed to the Supreme Court of Ohio, which affirmed her conviction because even though the search warrant's validity was doubtful, and the police's search of her home was illegal, the police officers had not used brutal force against her, and so under the Supreme Court's precedence in Wolf and uh, Rochin, the exclusionary rule did not have to apply. Mapp then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which agreed to hear her case. Notice there was no evidence of a search warrant. The tussle over the alleged search warrant should be considered bogus, in terms of any charges against Dolly Mapp, if there had been a legitimate search warrant, the officers could have brought two copies, one of which they would have kept and the other could have been given to the defendant to read and understand. The denial of access to counsel seems unwarranted according to the Sixth Amendment, although the officers might claim that they were merely taking the suspect into custody and she was not yet being prosecuted. But according to Justia, prosecution, prosecution occurs in a number of steps that are initiated by arrest. So Mapp was also denied access to counsel. Concerning the charges against Mapp, the Fourth Amendment states, no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched, and the person's or things to be seized. 
the pornographic material probably was not specified in the search warrant. If there had been one, but since none was ever produced in court, it should be assumed that the search warrant was never issued. Let's look at the majority opinion. Cornell University's Legal Information Institute website describes the 6-3 majority uh, opinion in this way. The majority held that all evidence obtained unconstitutionally without a search warrant is inadmissible in state criminal prosecutions. Such evidence was already barred in federal courts, but the majority agreed that the exclusionary rule for unlawfully seized evidence applied to state courts as well. Through the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court insisted that the exclusionary rule had to apply to the states or else the Fourth Amendment was essentially useless. Note the implication that without the 14th Amendment's due process clause, that the state of Ohio had the power to convict even though the evidence had been gained by unconstitutional breaking and entering Mapp's home, conflicting with the intent of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. The 14th Amendment seems to be a stretch of the law and is certainly subject to judicial abuse. There are issues here about the priority of law. Now is the time to return to the different kinds of amendments included in the Bill of Rights. You remember that by itself, the First Amendment, taken literally, did not provide the people the right to exercise religion, free speech, free press, assembly, and petition. It was only a specific exclusion of the power to interfere with those rights by the federal legislative body, Congress. These rights were implicit according to the Ninth Amendment, and the nation's history demonstrated that these rights had been successfully asserted on the battlefield in the War of Independence against Great Britain. There was no such confusion of intent over the Second through Eighth Amendments. They were explicit protections of the rights of the people. This raises a question about the relevance of the Fourteenth Amendment's Due Process Clause cited so often by the federal judiciary that it could be considered legal pixie dust. While there may be instances in which the 14th Amendment might apply, we must recognize that when it is invoked, it opens a door to interpretation by the judiciary. Has or has not due process been violated? What is due process? Due process can be difficult to define opening the judicial system to arbitrary interpretation and ultimately corruption of the law. The alternative reference to the Ninth Amendment, recognizing the natural law, can be significantly less open to interpretation. But the Ninth Amendment can be subject to interpretation and corruption as well. Unless there is a firm understanding that no natural right allows any individual to aggress or harm another, and that natural rights should be enjoyed by all without cost or harm to others. We do not have a right to health care, for example, because health care is not what economists call a free good, like the air we breathe. To the contrary, the education required to deliver health care is expensive, as is its actual delivery. We may have compassion for others and even assist in health care delivery as a matter of charity. But there is no such thing as a right to health care. Also, there is no such thing as gay rights because these provide advantages or privileges to a specific group. Every individual should be granted respect 
at least until they demonstrate they have not earned it. But that is a matter of civility, not the law. And finally, there is the matter of reproductive rights. If no other life were involved, then the non-aggression principle would dictate. But that alleged right would have to be based upon the assumption that life begins at birth, if so-called abortion rights are to be recognized. But it seems that scientists unintentionally from Darwin to today's genetic engineers are constantly demonstrating that life begins at conception. Why is all of this important when we seem to be discussing a single case before the Supreme Court of the United States, MAP versus Ohio? It is because we are discussing a series of cases we have labeled the decent dozen. The prior series, the Dirty Dozen, clearly resulted in bad decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States. The current series adds some balance to the bleak picture of the prior series. We could have labeled the current series the Clean Dozen or the Good Dozen as the uh, polar opposite of the Dirty Dozen. The problem is that it is difficult to identify Supreme Court opinions that cannot be faulted in some way even when the outcome of the case seems decent. Often the outcome was reasonable, but not philosophically correct. Mapp versus Ohio is an example of that. The violation of Mapp's Fourth Amendment rights is obvious, but the Supreme Court's reliance upon the 14th Amendment's due process clause is questionable. It would have been better to base the court's opinion on the Fourth Amendment alone, but if there were any question about the scope of the law, the legitimacy of the case could have been based upon the Ninth Amendment. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Mm. Amen, Phil. I love I love your picture of pixie dust, you know, that uh, any time they get into a corner, just sprinkle some 14th Amendment pixie dust on this. Uh, I agree with you. Using the 14th Amendment is kind of puzzling. Uh, but uh, the Fourth Amendment issue seems rather clear. Can the government say, we suspect that there's evidence related to a crime in your house and just come burst in without any warrant? And a warrant, obviously, is supposed to be a detached magistrate who uh, examines the probable cause. First of all, there has to be a crime that, you know, was committed. And then there has to be some probable cause that you or your uh, some uh, objects in your house were connected to that crime and uh, then then a warrant is issued but just for the uh, government agents in this case the police to say we just think we're going to break in and find the material so the other thing that is very clear about the fourth amendment is that uh, it says the right of the people to, uh, to be secure in their persons houses papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures and so the question is raised well what do they mean by unreasonable searches and seizures that right shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue. So a warrant would be a reasonable search and seizure, but the warrant must be upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation. That is, the uh, those appealing to receive the warrant, the police officers must swear an oath before Almighty God that they're not making things up. You know, <laughs> they're not trying to frame somebody. They're not planting evidence or something. This is there, and by the way, those those who swear these oaths are going to be held accountable by God on Judgment Day uh, if they uh, violated their oaths or if they uh, lie, lied about anything that they were doing. So 
the, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. In other words, the warrant has to specify exactly what they're looking for. And they cannot go on a fishing expedition as they did in Maps Home, where they were not looking for pornographic information uh, materials, but they found that. And what they the, what they were looking for, they also found the you know the bookie uh, kind of material and so forth. But they were not looking for that. And obviously, because the warrant never surfaced, the suspicion is there was no warrant. They just uh, scribbled something down on a piece of paper and pretended it was a warrant and. And they got it back from her, and uh, it never appeared again. So, whether there was a warrant or not, it appears the uh, whatever the warrant said, uh, the government did not want to reveal if there was actually a warrant or there was no warrant is almost irrelevant in in that case. It's clear that they were violating her God-given rights. Now, now it wasn't that a crime was not being committed, it wasn't that she wasn't part of a criminal thing, but uh, we want the, our our justice system to be very careful to guard our God-given rights. In other words, it's better in the eyes of our founders for some guilty persons to go free, like Matt did in this case, than it is for innocent people to be ensnared and punished by the government. If we kind of look at the background of uh, the Fourth Amendment, it's important to see that really it comes from the biblical standards. That's right. The biblical standards of that were the foundation of English common law. Uh, and English common law styles a man's house as his castle. And it's fascinating because that's the exact phrase in the biblical commentator, Matthew Henry. In his commentary on Exodus 22, when it's talking there about if somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you kill them, that's not even manslaughter. Uh, there's no crime committed whatsoever because they broke into the house, your house, in the middle of the night. That all those details. But uh, uh, Matthew Henry's commentary, the biblical commentary, says a man's house is his castle, and God's law as well as man's sets a guard upon it. He that assaults it does so at his Peril, and so it's fascinating to read what our founders were all reading. Uh, William Blackstone, and his commentaries on the laws of England, actually cites that. This is in Book Four, Chapter Sixteen of William Blackstone's commentaries. He says, "And the law of England has so particular and tender a regard to the immunity of a man's house that it styles it, that is, it considers it his castle, and will never suffer it to be violated with immunity." For this reason, no doors can in general be broken open to execute any civil process, though in criminal cases the public safety supersedes the private. Also, that a man may assemble people together lawfully in order to protect and defend his house against rioters or other lawbreakers, which he is not permitted to do in any other case. So the clarity of your protection of your property and your property rights is what the Fourth Amendment was all about. It was protecting the citizens against invasions of privacy. And of course, the history of the colonists is experiencing this under the tyrannical heel of King George III. King George III had, or Parliament had passed many different laws that were uh, just hated by the colonists, one of which was the Stamp Act, requiring most all paper to receive a stamp, that is to pay a small tax for every little scrap of paper, uh, whether it's a notebook or whether it's uh, you know something that is from the newspaper. Anyway, all paper just about had to receive a, a stamp indicating that it had paid the tax. But 
the colonists were, uh, you know, easily wanting to avoid this taxation. They were upset by it, and so they many of them did not pay it. So the king commissioned his soldiers to break into any house anywhere and rifle through the papers of the citizen to discover if there was any paper in their house. You know, maybe you had a paper bag or maybe you had a you know, a piece of scrap paper for your grocery list. If you had a piece of paper without the stamp, man, you were in big trouble now. And uh, the colonists said, this is this is incredibly evil. This is a violation of our God-given rights that our home is our castle. The king cannot break into our castle just as we cannot break into his castle unless we have committed a crime in this probable cause. So all the standards that the Fourth Amendment establishes reflect back on the kind of abuses that King George III was uh, engaged in there with the people. And so, to be reasonable, that search must accompany a warrant supported by probable cause, and that's set forth in an affidavit, and that is the officer is swearing that he's telling the truth and he's, he's presenting facts, and then a neutral magistrate, usually a judge, is the one that uh, determines if uh, there is that probable cause and, and the warrant is issued and uh, there you know there are exceptions that the courts have kind of created and uh, we could talk about those exceptions but the big thing we need to remember in our day now that this fourth amendment is almost a dead letter because many of our papers are no longer you know made of of rag and and and, and so forth many of our papers today are electronic so we send an email and never print it out, but that's our papers. And, and we make a transaction in our bank, and that's our papers and all kinds of things that we do electronically. And our federal government has chosen since 9-11 to spy on us without, uh, without any warrant whatsoever. You don't have to have committed a crime for the government to be looking at every single financial transaction in and out of your bank account, your credit card. You swipe your credit card, they, they add that to they have a huge database. They're so big, they had to build this massive thing in, in Utah to store all the information that they're sucking up out of the information of every single American in direct violation of the Fourth Amendment. The NSA is doing this, the FBI, the CIA, all these agencies of our federal government are lawbreakers. They're violating the Constitution, and sadly, they're getting away with it, at least at this point in time. And I believe they're getting away with it because we, the people, the American people, do not know the standard, and we have not heard the facts that our government is spying on us in spite of uh, Edward Snowden making that revelation and being uh, enemy number one for the, the lawbreakers because uh, he exposed that they were acting criminally. They were violating the Constitution and violating our, our God-given right to protection against unreasonable search and seizure. Because if you have not committed a crime, and there's no probable cause that you've committed a crime. There's no business that the federal government has looking at your bank account whatsoever, looking at your email, listening to your phone conversations, or all the other things they're doing of spying on we the people. In fact, we could conclude that our current government is far worse than King George III. Oh, yes, his lobster backs did break into people's houses and they did rifle through their papers. But our government is doing something even far more insidious than that. Uh, and basically, they're gathering information. They're building a dossier on each one of us in direct violation of the Fourth Amendment. And the question is, what are these people thinking? How come they 
uh, cannot understand the plain and simple words of the Fourth Amendment that say it is illegal for them to do the search and seizure that they're doing when there is no warrant. And in spite of the fact that sometimes they go to the FISA court, you know, to get this secret court to make a determination. Oh, yeah, you can spy on this person. We can spy on Donald Trump and we can spy on Donald Trump's uh, associates there in his campaign. And we know that was all a political hack uh, because they were trying to defeat him uh, in, in the election. That, that was what that was all about. It had nothing to do with, oh, some supposed crime or Russian collusion. It was Hillary that was colluding with Russia, but they never went after her. They you know, made up fake charges against Donald Trump. So we have a government currently that is so far out of line and, and such violation of this that this case, Matt v. Ohio, is helpful because the Supreme Court came to the right conclusion. Like you say, Phil, that, you know, they probably should not have been relying on the 14th Amendment. They should have been talking about the ninth or the fourth uh, or combination thereof. But nonetheless, there in 1961, they did understand that there are limits on what the investigative powers of the government must be. And those limits are defined in the Constitution. And when the government violates those limits, basically the people, even though, you know, in this case, MAP was involved in criminal activity of betting and gambling and stuff, you know, okay, but they had to get that information some other way. Uh, and uh, they did not get it legally. And we have to have our law enforcement agencies obeying the law. How dare the law enforcement agencies decide that they're above the law. They don't need to obey the law. And that's essentially what we have in our federal government with the NSA and the FBI and all the other agencies spying on us illegally. The solution to this problem, of course, is starts with we the people understanding the Constitution and understanding the limits our Constitution places on what the federal government can do in terms of gathering information about the citizens. And then, of course, we must demand that those who represent us in Congress, in the House and the Senate, shut down these operations of spying on the American people. Yes, there are bad people out in, around the world, but when your own government is violating the law, trying to tell you, oh, don't worry about it, you know, we'll, we'll violate the law for your own good. Don't believe them. No, no, no. When they're violating the law, they are lawbreakers, and they cannot use the excuse. Well, we're trying to protect you. You know, there's big bad terrorists out there around the world. You know, there's guys in with a towel on their head hiding in some cave somewhere that are. No, no, no. The government, our own government, when it violates the Constitution and violates the law, is a greater threat to our liberties and our security and our property and even our life than any terrorist hiding in some cave with a towel on his head. You see, if the government will not obey the Constitution, then it's not a government. I guess you could say it's a mafia, you know, a federal mafia. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on, on this, uh, this case, MAP v. Ohio? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. I have to admit that I'm excited to talk about this today because this is a very relevant issue. It's relevant for me in my practice because we argue motions rooted in the Fourth Amendment constantly, but it's also relevant to each and every person who is listening to this episode, whether they realize it or not. I want to say at the outset that I think people on the right misunderstand the importance of this issue all too often, and they get it wrong. The reason is they see cases on TV where someone got caught committing a crime, and because the police unconstitutionally got a hold of the evidence— the whole case gets thrown out and the defendant goes free. But I think people's anger should be on the government for failing to act within the bounds of the Constitution rather than the constitutional protections themselves. 
You know, my criminal law professor once told us that people's view of the criminal justice system is largely framed based upon whether they believe they're more likely to be accused of a crime or a victim of a crime. Now, some people on the right, while not necessarily overly concerned about being the victim of a crime, believe that they will never be accused of a crime for whatever reason. Perhaps they naively believe that innocent people don't get accused of crimes. I have personally been involved in these cases throughout the course of my career. And it's not always something as simple as they've got the wrong guy. Maybe someone has a totally unreasonable vendetta against you and makes something up. I deal with these kinds of cases on a daily basis. When you see today's political climate, do you really think it's unfathomable that someone would make false claims against the opposition? I'll put it this way. If you believe it will never happen to you, you officially have something in common with every criminal defendant I've ever represented. Every single one of them thought it would never happen to them. I've never sat across from someone who told me, you know, Mike, I always knew this was bound to happen. It was just a matter of time. I will tell you, my colleague once represented the exceptions of the rule. His client was a drug dealer who had factored in legal representation as a cost of doing business, figuring it would eventually catch up with him at some point. And with that kind of foresight and logical planning, it makes you wonder how successful he would be in a legitimate business venture. But in recent years, people on the right have seen prosecutions that they believe to be politically motivated, and hopefully this is something that's opening their eyes a little bit and showing people that the government cannot be allowed to ignore the Constitution to throw whoever they deem to be the bad guys in jail. Now, Phil and Pastor Whitney's explanation of the case was more than adequate, so I want to get a little bit into the practical advice that comes from this case. Understand that generally to search or seize, the government needs a warrant or an exception to the warrant requirement. To get that warrant, you would need probable cause, as Pastor Whitney mentioned, which is reasonable suspicion based on articulable facts, and not just something like, trust me, something fishy's going on here, or I've been around a long time and I've got a feeling, or when I know, I know. Pastor Whitney also did great talking about the requirement that the warrant state with particularity the places to be searched and the items to be seized, and that's very important. We have a case right now disputing whether the government can seize rifles when they're searching for an alleged stolen handgun. For example, if the government's searching a box truck for human beings who are being trafficked, they can't legally look in the glove compartment because people can't fit in the glove compartment. One thing that throws these constitutional protections out the window for you is if a person gives consent. An officer can ask you to take a look around just the way any stranger can. Would you allow a stranger to search your home or your vehicle when they had no legal authority to do so? Well, many people consent, and they flush all their rights down the drain. Remember these words. I don't consent to any searches. I'll say it again in case you didn't hear me. I don't consent to any searches. Never, ever, ever, ever consent. Even if they say they have a warrant, make it known that you don't consent to any searches. I'm very careful not to say that the government can't do something, because often they do. I get these calls all the time where people give me a 10-minute story and say the police did X, Y, and Z, and they can't do that. And my response is, well, it sounds to me like they did. What the person means is the police can't legally do that. People ask, well, what if they say, well, I'll just get a warrant? 
I say go ahead. I don't consent to any searches. Make it loud and clear. You want to get a warrant? Go ahead. I don't consent to any searches. I had a case that dealt with this very particular issue when I was at the radio station at WFYL and got a call from a client. He had been questioned by the police. I got on the phone and said he will not make any statements. I am his counsel. You are to ask him no further questions. Well, it became very clear that I had to make it on over to the scene. So I headed on over, rushed out of there. Russ, I apologize about that. And ultimately, I got a call while I was on the way that the police were at the man's house. He was not home. His wife was there. And the police were asking if they could come in and take a look around. I was on the phone. I said, they are not coming in without a warrant. Tell them I don't consent to any searches and you're going to need a warrant. Well, they responded, our warrant's on the way. We already got the warrant. It'll be here any minute. And she asks, well, can I let them in because the warrant's on the way? I said, absolutely not. When that warrant gets there, then they can take a look around. Until then, you don't consent to any searches. They're going to have to wait till that warrant shows up. Well, the police stood outside with their lights flashing a little bit. She told them that I was on the way. By the time I got to her home, the police were no longer there. I am still waiting for that warrant to arrive. Police, uh, people also ask me, well, what if you don't consent and they search anyway? They very well may do that. And that is exactly why MAP versus Ohio is so important. It gives teeth to the Fourth Amendment and the government violating your rights. The doctrine is frequently called fruit of the poisonous tree. And that evidence is fruit of a poisonous tree, an unconstitutional search. And if the government can get away with this kind of stuff, it would be an absolute disaster. The government should not be able to use evidence against you that it obtained unlawfully and unconstitutionally. Thank you. Especially love, love that story that, uh, you know, they did not have it. And, and perhaps in this case, Matt v. Ohio, they, you know, they faked a, a search warrant and she grabbed it and they grabbed it back from her. And of course, they never used that as evidence in, in the court at all. So I guess my question might be for you, Mike, if, 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 they, if they're, they're at your door and you say, I, don't, I do not consent to any searches, uh, go get your warrant. And they come back with a warrant. Do you have to, can you see the warrant without them entering your house first? Give me the warrant. Let me read it. Let me see the judges. Can I check this warrant out? I mean, is this a legitimate judge? Is there, you know, is all the all the paperwork here actually correct before letting them in? I mean, is that possible? It sure it sure is. You can you could certainly ask that. Whether functionally speaking, that's the way it's going to shake out is a different story. But the number one thing you can do is to continue to say you don't consent to any searches because if that warrant is bogus. They cannot claim that you consented and they didn't need that warrant in the first place. If that warrant's bogus and they don't have consent, they obviously don't have an exception because that's why they would need the bogus warrant in the first place, then all of that evidence is getting thrown out of court. Mm. So the, the, the fail-safe seatbelt you've got in this situation is no matter what happens, make it known that you don't consent to any searches. Oh, very good. And, and I appreciate that. And by the way, I am not at all anti-police. I have a good friend uh, in church who's a police officer who knows the Constitution, both the, the U.S. Constitution and the Maryland Constitution, and seeks to do his job and instruct other police officers to do their job according to the law. And I love that. So I'm not anti-police, but there are many, sadly, and they're sadly they're not trained specifically as they should be trained uh, in terms of our Constitution. 
I think I'm anti-constitutional violations, and that that says enough. Whether it's the police or uh, uh, a Martian, I really don't care who it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I, I've never personally had that that experience, but uh, I've had friends who have had that experience. I think it's important to know that you do not need to allow them to search anything, whether it's your car or your person, unless uh, they have a warrant. I understand, however, if they arrest you, then they can do a search subsequent to an arrest. Is that That, that would correct? be one where a search incident to arrest. There are a number of exceptions to that warrant requirement. Uh, that would be one of them. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And we could talk for two hours about all those different <laughs> exceptions, but the bottom, it still comes back to if you make it known that you don't consent to any searches, if the court finds that they really didn't have that exception that they claim to have, then that evidence is still getting thrown out of court. And I understand where people are coming from that you want to comply with the police and be respectful and all. Uh, that's what I was always taught growing up. And uh, I'll be honest, I had long hair in high school and in college. And that tends to get you pulled over with, <laughs> with with some requests for searches, whether it's right or wrong. And I've consented to a lot of searches as a, a teenager and in, in my younger 20s, not realizing that we had these rights and, and these are the rights that you need to assert. Uh, I wish somebody had told me this sooner. Uh, fortunately, I, I never had any major incidents that resulted in anything bad happening to me. Um, but, I, you know, I, I forfeited those rights unknowingly in the spirit of I'm going to comply and be respectful to the police. Interrupt with a, another incident. When I was a teenager, I did not have long hair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have hair, which is, is surprising to some people. We, no, I did not have long hair. Okay. Uh, all the teenagers in those days, and they, they were all very peaceful, by the way. Uh, would hang out at the the local uh, sweet shop, and uh, you know just talk on the on the sidewalk and so forth. And you know there could be as many as as twenty of them at a time. And one night, uh, the police roll up, you know, with the uh, the light flashing and all the rest of it. And we were accused of loitering, and we'd have to break it up and go home. Well, okay, uh, so just about everybody left except myself and, and a couple of other people. There was a store next uh, next to the, the sweet shop, which was selling televisions. And of course, that was a big deal in those days. Uh, you could see the television from the, the sidewalk. And so I was just watching the television and they said, hey, we told you to, to break it up and go home. And I said, I'm just watching television. And with that, they seized me and said, get into the squad car and put me in the squad car, and uh, they drove around the block, and then I think they started to get a little antsy. And they said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna leave, let you go, but don't do this again. Well, when my mother heard what they did, she went berserk. She said, just like your, your rule, Mike, uh, she said, if you ever are picked up like that, insist that you go to the station and be booked. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's a that's a good one. Your mom was very smart, Phil. She was very smart. She was she was a wise woman. Another thing is with these mere encounters. If we're gonna get into this topic of discussion, if a police can approach you and ask any questions they want, uh, you don't have to answer them, and you don't have to engage with them. Just like somebody walking down the street can ask you questions about your socks or anything like that, a, a police officer 
can ask you any question they want. You're not obligated to stay there and engage. And frequently the mistake that people make is they, they do so. The first question should be, am I being detained? Because the you're being detained when a reasonable person under those circumstances would not feel free to leave. The problem is that most people, when they're approached by law enforcement, are not in a position where they feel free to leave because they've got that uh, authority. And so people need to vocalize, am I being detained? Because they need a reason to detain you. They need reasonable suspicion based on articulable facts that a crime is being committed or just has been committed. They talk about criminal activity being afoot. And if you ask them specifically, am I being detained? If they say no, your next response should be, well, then have a nice day and walk away. That's all it should contain. If they say, yes, you are being detained, a good follow-up question may be, well, what crime do you suspect I've committed or am committing? That might make them realize, hey, I really don't have any reason to do this. I ought to let this person go and let them go about their day. Uh, but getting that on the record as well. Uh, will put you in a position. Are you going to stop them from putting you in handcuffs if that's what they're intent to do? Probably not. You don't win any cases on the side of the road, but knowing your rights and asserting your rights will help you at the later stages if necessary. Mm. And it's uh, one of the things that is a great violation of this Fourth Amendment principle is the DUI stops. So mm. every vehicle on the road, you know, they stop every single vehicle. I've seen a video of some people who have challenged that and uh, you know, they ask, uh, is there a warrant because you've pulled me over? You know, is there some crime that's been some violation of? No, every every single car is being pulled over. And, and so the person asked that question, am I being detained? And the police says no, and then they should be able to leave. But if they do, then the police chase them down. It's like, no, well, so that that whole rule is being violated by the police on a regular basis. And, and I discovered a reason why, and it has to do with money, which shouldn't be any surprise. Our local chief of police here in our county, uh, we had the time of being able to talk to him about various issues and ask him various questions. We asked him about this, these DUI stops where everybody is pulled off the road. This is a violation of the Fourth Amendment and so on. And he said, yeah, I know. And he said, and I know it's really not effective. It really doesn't make the roads safer at all. So he said, well, why do you do it? He said, federal money. What? What do you mean federal money? Yeah, we get paid federal money to do these stops uh, and, uh, you know, basically to call everybody on the road and check everybody's ID and, and, you know, regardless of whether they've done anything at all. And that was to me a sham that our own police are being bought and paid by the federal government to do a violation of the Fourth Amendment for everybody that's on the road for some nefarious purpose that the federal government has. And who knows what that exactly is, but uh, uh, that that is egregious. One of the other things, I guess, then is the whole Miranda rights uh, ties into this in that same respect. You don't have to say anything uh, to the police. In fact, uh, the Miranda rights say anything you do say can and will be used against you in, in a court of law. Is that correct? It's not canon might be used against you. It's canon will be used against you. <laughs> They're not kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're better off saying nothing, which they, uh, of course, we know that uh, the, the cop shows have done a great job propagandizing that, that and say, oh, that's awful. Those people lawyer up. It's the bad people that lawyer up. Well, no, no, it's the smart people. It's the people that know the Constitution, that know the government must have limits that we, the people, enforce. And that's one place where we can set the limit up and say, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm not letting you in. I'm not going to let you search my car unless you have the proper warrant to do so. 
And just thinking about those checkpoints, and I am not by any means a DUI attorney. I did spend my first year in practice at a firm that had a, a strong focus on DUI, the McShane firm, although I was not a DUI attorney over there. And Richard Roberts from my office does a whole lot of uh, DUI stuff. He's been trained the same way officers have been on these issues with the field sobriety tests. Uh, one thing I do know is that when they do uh, these DUI checkpoints, they have to have a, a sufficient reason to be doing so based on uh, local experience, based on uh, incidents that have taken place in the area. And it's got to be determined ahead of time. They have to uh, mark these areas very clearly. And interestingly, if you see these areas that are marked very clearly and you can safely turn around, you do not have to go through that checkpoint. <laughs> oh, that's a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's another part of this that that troubles me. As a, um, I I hate to call myself a libertarian. I'm I'm really a classical liberal, I suppose. But uh, it's Maps alleged, alleged uh, criminal act participating in a numbers game. Well, who is Map really aggressing in a situation like this? The state of Ohio, right? Isn't that the claim that she's she's aggressing against the public? Well, really, the state of Ohio is is an abstraction, and the law is about individuals, really. So, uh, what is it about the state of Ohio in this case, and and other states as well? The state hates competition. The state runs its own lottery business, and in fact, uh, the states are usually involved in uh, getting a rake off on financial markets stock exchanges and that kind of thing, where they encourage speculation to occur, betting. Okay, so really there's not much of a moral case here to be made uh, for the state of Ohio and, and states like it when they are acting in, in that manner. You know, good, good point, Phil. In fact, here in Maryland, our state constitution makes it very plain that it is illegal for anybody to conduct a lottery unless you are the state government of Maryland. <laughs> yeah. What immigrants? It's not that gambling is bad. It's, no, no, no. We are the gamblers, and you, you little peons, you can't create your own lottery. You, you know, uh, you might get away with bingo, but uh, <laughs> don't, don't try a lottery. We'll throw you in jail. This is something that's constantly changing uh, throughout the course of history in terms of you know, whether gambling is good, bad, lawful, unlawful. Uh, we thought it interesting because we have a case where our client was convicted of bookmaking, and it's a misdemeanor of the first degree in Pennsylvania. As a result, the max possible sentence is five years, rendering him prohibited from possessing firearms under federal law. He did not serve a day in jail. He got unsupervised probation because the courts recognized this is a you know, fairly innocuous offense. Uh, but ultimately... He's prohibited, and we're challenging this. We're now in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals asking for the court to issue an order declaring the prohibition on his firearms rights is unconstitutional as applied to him. Now, one of the things that uh, threw a wrench in this case was the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case, where Justice Clarence Thomas uh, issued his opinion using the history, text, and tradition standard. And what they're trying to figure out in the Third Circuit is how that's going to apply to this type of a challenge. 
And because if you look back historically, was bookmaking <laughs> at the time of the found the, the founders considered a serious offense that would prohibit you from possessing firearms? If they come through with that standard, I think we win. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. And so I, I haven't heard anything about that period of time in which gambling was considered to be criminal. In fact, uh, just about all of the, the movers and shakers in society were gamblers. So if you if you have a regular poker game at your house, you know, once a week and uh, friends and so forth gather, is that, a, is that also a criminal activity? Because, you know, you're gambling without a state license to gamble, right? Yeah, and there have been some really interesting cases about that as well. Uh, somebody took it up to a state Supreme Court, and his contention was that poker actually isn't gambling, which makes sense if you think about it, because how would the same folks end up at the final table of the World Series of Poker every single year if it was truly gambling? If you held, like, <laughs> if you held this nationwide competition on slot machines where it's truly random, I don't think you'd have the same people ending up in the finals every single year. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> oh. But the, the, the gambling business is profitable for the government. I You know, here in Maryland, the, they actually amended the Constitution to create casinos because casinos were illegal until the government decided, no, 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 it's good. We ought to have casinos here because we want to compete with West Virginia and all the other states that are that are ga into gambling. It's like this whole thing smacks of the government wants its cut of all of those operations. So as long as you're willing to give a cut to the government and be part of a deal with the government gets it cut, then it's fine for you to gamble. But don't you dare do it on your own to profit yourself because uh, then you're a real criminal. <laughs> oh, it's something similar we're seeing with state governments in marijuana, is it not? They're generating a ton of money from something that they're throwing people in jail for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For how many years? <laughs> and it's interesting to see how that's rolled out in our state. It's the people who are politically connected that wind up getting the license to sell pot. You know, if you're just the average citizen, you know, and you don't have the political connections, you're never going to get that license to sell pot. Yeah. So it's the politicians rewarding their friends who've got them elected with plenty of campaign cash that wind up getting to sell the pot. Anyway, the, the whole corruption is just egregious that we see taking place. I'm sure in 10 or 20 years, we'll be talking about things that we did, didn't foresee becoming legal and regulated by the government so they can participate. <laughs> well, can we take a Go look ahead. at the, yeah. uh, the IRS uh, and uh, how this case relates to IRS operations? Uh, because of course, the, the IRS operates under, under the threat of force. Um, nobody would go through the, the agony of preparing all of these tax records, uh, educating themselves in the tax law, which is so Byzantine that, that nobody really understands it. So uh, basically, if we had free will here, nobody would fill out any tax forms. But we do. And why do we do that? Well, <clears throat> in the back of our minds is, hey, they'll seize our assets. They'll seize our home. And what if we don't comply? They will break and enter. Is Do I have that right, Mike? Is that is that a correct sequence? <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> oh, there's a there's a video. I don't know if it's it's been taken down so many times. I'm not sure it's still up there. But Aaron Russo did a video called From Freedom to Fascism, where he did a, a pretty good investigative uh 
documentary on the IRS and and their their treatment of the American people is really eye opening. So if you can if you can still find it, if they haven't taken it down and and uh, abolished it, from freedom to fascism uh, by Aaron Russo, that is a great watch. Yeah, that's certainly something I'd like to look into because the uh, the connections with fascism. I mean, fascism as it is is correctly defined. Uh, unfortunately. The term fascism is is weaponized today. It's whosoever's in charge, and uh, whoever is opposing them are fascists. And that mm-hmm. is not what fascism fascism is about. Yeah. Fascism is is a collectivism, like socialism, like uh, the old communism under under uh, uh, Stalin and so forth. It's just a another collectivism in which there is a an unholy agreement between the corporate state. To operate as long as they produce the goods that the state requires and charges what the state requires, uh, that they will get their price and they'll, they'll make their profits. That's mm-hmm. what that's what fascism is. And it's really it's a throwback to the the mercantilism. It's just a a new form of the mercantilism that drove the uh, uh, the colonists nuts, and they decided, hey, we've had enough of this. Uh, we're going to throw out the mercantilist uh, British government. We, we no longer want to be sub, subject to them. Yeah, they can call us smugglers if they want, but uh, we're going to throw them out. So really, the War of Independence had nothing to do with taxation without representation. It was really mostly about you know wanting to get rid of mercantilism and being able to, to trade freely. Well, I'm glad you bring up the IRS because when, you, when we consider the Fourth Amendment, it's as if it does not exist regarding the IRS. And one of the reasons I believe they gather all the financial information on us and, you know, they're hiring 87,000 new IRS agents is to be and and basically have promised us they're going to track down every transaction that's six hundred dollars and above is because they intend to go after every single bit of our financial life and be able to tax us to death, essentially. And, of course, the politicians in Washington say, oh, it's all about those people who are getting away with. No, no, no. It's about control. And it's about information on each one of us. So it's very difficult to get out of the grip of that uh, uh, that kind of tyrannical thing. But we have a federal government that does not believe in obeying the law. We ought to really seriously consider that fact. The federal government today does not consider the Fourth Amendment something that is at all a barrier to their operations. <laughs> they, they spy on us without that warrant, and they uh, do things that we would say— if this was in our founders' era, uh, I'm afraid this would not end well for them. But I'm not threatening anything because I know that they're listening and don't want to, well, anything like that to happen. But it only happens because we the people have allowed those who represent us, those who we elect, to not know the standard and allow the standard to be violated and violated egregiously. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL on each Friday morning at 8 a.m. And by the way, Mike has a great show just before us at 7, Mike G in the morning, The Law Matters. Also, check out our podcast because each of these broadcasts is ultimately archived. If you go to 1180wfyl.com, click on the podcast link, and we're all the way down the bottom, the very last in the list there, We the People, The Constitution Matters. And we know that we can restore the republic. But it takes each of us understanding it and then ultimately spreading that good news across the country. Join us again next Friday morning.